Welcome to Week in Review, where we recap issues and events pertinent to Central Illinois. I'm WNBD News Director Cooper Banks. It does not exactly come as welcome news, the scale of Peoria's pension problem. Local elected leaders received a very sobering reminder about how far the city has to go before it has appropriately paid for the entire unfunded liability connected to police and fire pensions. That cost has skyrocketed in just the past 10 to 15 years and shows no signs of slowing. In the meantime, the city is only left to figure out how to come up with the money, and not many options look good. I caught up with Peoria City Manager Patrick Urich to learn more. Patrick, uh, just tell us what it was that everybody was reminded about on Tuesday. Uh, well, with regard to, to, to pensions, one of the challenges that we, we've really talked about there is that, is that the city is responsible for funding police and fire pensions, uh, but has virtually no control over the benefit levels that are established by the state, the contribution levels determined for the employees, the composition of the pension boards, how the pension boards invest the money, um, the and fund managers that they that they hire, uh, all we really at the city level have to do is make sure that we're levying the taxes to make the employees sh- or the employee uh, or share of that contribution. And what we've seen over over the last uh, 20 years uh, uh, or 13 years, really from 2010 to 2023, is that our contribution levels have grown from 10 million dollars. So we're thinking next year they'll be they'll be just under thirty million dollars, and we've seen that in addition to the property taxes that we contribute, um, we're going to have to contribute probably another ten million dollars more. So of course it's it's important for the folks on the working end who are paying the taxes on all of this to contribute to all of this. I think to kind of understand what the options are for elected leaders here. And we boiled it on Tuesday down essentially to, as far as I can understand it, three options, cut service, raise taxes, or go with a risky option of issuing new public pension obligation bonds, pension obligation bonds. It was an interesting conversation about those three options. Now, do you have any sense right now, Patrick, about the mood of council in approaching any one of those options, all of them, some combination of them? What can you tell us about that? Well, I think that I think that um, I think there's some interest from some council members on can a pension obligation bond. Um, by the city sometime. Uh, and the, the risk that, that we have been talking about with pension obligation bonds um, is that you're exchanging soft pension debt for hard bond debt. And what that, that really means is that you're, you're obligated now to paying a bondholder those, those debt service payments for the next 20 years. And you could end up in a situation where not only do you owe your your pension obligation bond debt, but you're going to have to make up more because the stock market has underperformed. 
So, so that becomes a risk with that as well if you don't meet those, those targets that you're hoping to get. Um, so then that leaves the, the two options that the city controls. One is, is finding additional revenue, and the city is obligated to doing that. Uh, or they're obligated to cutting services. And, and um, so those are really the two levers that the city has left, um, both in, in many eyes of the, of the council are distasteful because one requires uh, additional taxes being or current taxes being set aside. If you take current taxes and setting those aside for pensions, that means you're reducing that, that revenue stream for services and delivering services to our community. So I jump in, I would jump in right there and ask you what your level of, because then the other option that's presented, which is something that everyone has less control over, you might say in city government anyway, but that would help is okay, increase the tax base. So what level of confidence that do you have sitting in your chair that Peoria is in a position to achieve that, but maybe in order to help over the longer term? Can you would you be able to speak to that? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think that that council um, recognizes that that the the choices are are not good. I think that that as a home rule city. Um, Peoria has the ability to, to um, certainly raise revenues to cover our, our future obligations. Um, that we have the authority to do. Whether there's the political will to do it is a, is a second question, and, that, that, and, and that's really probably best answered by the, the council. Sure. Um, but I do think that, that um, in the absence of, of additional revenue, um, what we have to look at is how do we how do we then take uh, current revenues and where do we where do we make those choices about reducing services and I think that's that's where I think council really um, understands the difficult task ahead because they don't like to cut services because they know that that means that there's a street that's not going to get you know redone there's there's sidewalks that aren't going to be put in. Um, there's less police on the street. There's less code enforcement officers on the street. There's less firefighters on the street, and that's that's difficult when you're trying to to um, have a city um, and deliver services to a city of, of 115,000 people. And I think I think that that you know there was a lot of discussion last Tuesday about growth and what can the city be doing to position Peoria for growth, and that that's an important aspect of this. You know, and and you know the the fourth option. I was I, I was going to say real quick on that, and I'm, I'm not being contrarian yeah, here. Ahead. But what I say is that it, that seemed to be, it's like the one option that no one talks about. It's it's we got to raise taxes or we have to cut services because the pension obligation bonds are really risky, and but. It is as if not to mention the idea of growth means that there's little hope or confidence that it will happen, is how I might state that. Is is there a lack of confidence that growth that could be meaningful toward this pension obligation, that that, that level of growth could happen? Is there a lack of confidence in that? No, I, I, I think that, that we're seeing right now um, – you know, as we as we come out of the pandemic, we saw it last year in, in 2021, and we're, we're certainly seeing it here for the first quarter of 2022, 
is that is that um, Peoria has been recovering economically, and that's a good that's a good sign, mm-hmm. and that's helping um, that growth and that growth in revenues uh, is going to make it easier in 2022 and 2023 uh, as we look at that that spending plan for 2023 and likely into 2024. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to make it easier for us um, to meet those pension obligations. The key is sustaining it. The key yeah. is making sure that we continue to have that growth beyond uh, our current, um, you know, the current year that we're in. Um, and that if we can continue to have that kind of sustained economic growth, uh, that's going to make it easier for everyone. Yeah. And would move on to, because like, that idea about the analogy, and I'd just have you speak to the idea, you know, this pension obligation issue it's a big whale. We're eating it one bite at a time. Uh, what you know? How how much faster can we eat it? That all kind of applies here. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I you know in in a lot of ways, um, you know we have been trying to eat eat this you know whale one bite at a time, and and our, our bites probably aren't big enough. And I think that's something that we have to continue to look at and. Um, you know, in this type of fiscal environment that we're seeing right now, um, that where we're, we're seeing some additional state revenue growth uh, that's coming in, we're seeing uh, that we've got, you know, stronger sales tax growth, uh, that's going to make it easier for us in the short term. But the long term, uh, that goal of, of, of economic growth uh, really has to be put to the forefront because that's going to help us with this whole issue. There just aren't enough teachers in classrooms across Illinois. But state lawmakers and Governor J.B. Pritzker rolled out a new law earlier in the week that's designed to help with that. The big announcement made Wednesday outside a high school in Springfield. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Gill. Thanks for having us uh, here today. And also, I want to say for the work that you and that your chief equity officer, Jamar Scott, and your entire team is doing to renew and and improve the student learning experience here in the Springfield District. I also want to thank our legislative hosts uh, and champions for progress that we're making today. Bill sponsors Senator Doris Turner and Representative Sue Scherer, as well as Senator Meg Lochran Kappel, and their many General Assembly uh, colleagues, including our great Senator Bennett, who's sitting in the front row here, uh, who, and there are many who could not make it today, uh, who were very much involved in getting this legislation through. Senator Christina Passione-Zayas, Representative Dagmara Avelar, and Representative Ann Stava-Murray. So thank you all for being champions for parents, for schools, for local school boards, and for putting our children's needs at the forefront. These four bills that I will sign shortly are part of a larger effort that's been underway really for three years now to rebuild the ranks of teachers and paraprofessional educators across our state after years of decline. I'm proud that Illinois has added more than 5,600 teachers to the profession this school year alone, which is more than in any single year over the last five years combined. Um, And it's the largest single year increase in new teachers on record since records have been kept. To get here, 
over the last three years, we've raised the minimum teacher salaries in Illinois. We've better funded teacher pensions. We've provided $1.2 billion for the evidence-based school funding model. We've made it easier for retired teachers to come back to work, enhanced recruitment and retention programs, and created more flexible routes for licensure. And there's still so much more work to be done to ensure that no classroom goes without an education professional. In Illinois, schools still have more than 2,100 unfilled teaching positions statewide. That includes 15 unfilled teaching slots here in Springfield and 64 in Decatur with similar need for paraprofessional positions. With new tools, though, and new funding at their disposal, districts all across the state are working to find new ways to bring people into this profession and to encourage them to stay there. Springfield Public Schools has launched an incredible new diverse workforce pipeline program paying for their teaching assistants and paraprofessionals to become fully licensed classroom teachers. It's an innovative way to use one-time federal learning renewal dollars for a cause that will pay dividends for years to come. And I am very proud to see it come out of our capital city. But here and across Illinois, the state can still do more to make entering, staying, and returning to a classroom more attractive for our educators. In this fight for our children's futures, our districts should know they're far from alone. That's why today I'll sign legislation to reduce the reinstatement fees by 90% for a lapsed educator license. That becomes effective immediately. This will help more than a thousand teachers re-enter the teaching ranks every year. We'll also allow students currently enrolled in teaching programs who have nearly finished the requirements to graduate to get into the classroom early as substitute teachers. That includes leaders like Haley Schwapak, a recent college graduate and current student teacher at Grant Elementary here in Springfield, who will share her story in just a few moments. We're also tripling the time short-term substitute teachers are allowed to spend in a classroom. Finally, we're dropping the minimum age for paraprofessional educators to help out in K-8 classrooms from 19 years old to 18. Because if a prospective educator has completed all the necessary coursework and training, their age as an adult shouldn't stand in their way. That includes aspiring educator Eleanor Stuckey, an 11th grade student here at Springfield High enrolled in the Teacher Education Pipeline Program at Lincoln Land. You'll hear from her as well. To succeed in improving our education system and overcoming years of neglect, we must make sure that we have great teachers in our classrooms, in every classroom. People like Eleanor and Haley serve as the entry point for kids to learn about the world. It's on all of us to show them that we value them, and that includes by making sure that they have enough colleagues to get the job done. I'm very proud that the budget that I signed into law for the coming school year more than doubles the Minority Teacher of Illinois Scholarship Program 
opening doors for more Illinoisans to lead classrooms in the communities they serve. And just months after I became governor, we put Illinois teachers on track to earn at least $40,000 a year beginning on the first day of school in 2023, quadruple the previous statutory minimum wage for teachers. That law, combined with proper funding and all the work to remove barriers for qualified people to enter this profession, is increasing the ranks of teachers across our state even now. To teachers in this room and all over the state and potential teachers, I see the hard-earned dollars that you pull from your own pockets to provide school supplies in your classrooms, the after-school hours that you spend with students in your classrooms, um, the students who need a little extra help, the food that you bring to make sure that no student in your class goes hungry. And I see you, and I want you to know that we are continuing to find new ways to bring more help into our classrooms so that all students can get the education that they deserve. Dr. Ayala. Thank you. Good morning. I'm the State Superintendent of Education, Dr. Carmen Ayala. I'm also excited to have Jayla Davis. She's a member of our Student Advisory Council here today. The Illinois State Board of Education has student advisory members from across the entire state, and Jayla is here, so thank you, Jayla. I also want to thank Representative Scherer, Senator Capel, Representative Stava Murray, Senator Turner, Representative Avalar and Senator Pasione Zayas for their sponsorship of the important teacher pipeline bills that the governor will be signing here today. Illinois has accomplished enormous strides in growing and elevating the teacher profession, as well as attracting the best and the brightest to this incredible profession. Since Illinois enacted historic funding reform, Governor Pritzker has invested more than $1 billion in evidence-based funding. Our teacher workforce has steadily grown. This year alone, our teachers, our schools hired 5,600 teachers, as was mentioned. Last year, we recorded the highest teacher retention rate since we started reporting teacher retention back in 2014. And we saw the biggest jump in teacher salaries thanks to Governor Pritzker and the General Assembly for increasing the minimum teacher salary. This is amazing work and we as a state have made amazing progress. As we look forward, we must continue to root our efforts to strengthen the teaching profession in equity because not all schools and not all students are experiencing teacher staffing issues in the same way. We must continue to focus on strengthening the pipeline for special education and bilingual education, supporting equitable funding for our schools with the fewest resources, and building local pipelines of talent and high-need areas. Springfield District 186 has taken this approach and has dedicated $2 million of their federal pandemic relief funds to offer financial assistance for diverse candidates to become teachers in the district. A way to fight criminals by making potential informants and tipsters feel safer about talking to law enforcement. It's just one of many items addressed in legislation promoted by State Representative Jahan Gordon Booth in Peoria this past week. She stood with Peoria police as she made the big announcements on Monday. I don't know how many of you know, but um, this week, today, 
actually begins National Crime Victims' Rights Week. And I'd like for us to all take a small moment and acknowledge the crime victims in our community, those that have perished, but also those uh, that survived, but live with the trauma every day of those crimes. If we could just take a small moment to pay respect to the crime victims of this community. 40 years ago this week, the White House Task Force on Victims of Crime was established to help those who experienced crime and their families to come up with some important steps to be able to move their lives forward, to better support the victims of crime, to be able to provide dedicated professionals and resources to those individuals, to be able to move their lives forward in a much more holistic, trauma-informed way, to better help support those overcome the systemic barriers that we know that many of our crime victims face in our community. However, we know that there is a lot of work that remains in that space, and I'm proud to say that those that you're looking at uh, that stand behind me are all committed, incredibly committed to that work in the city of Peoria. We are here today collectively, collaboratively, to not only talk about the objectives, but the wins that have been won this year in what I call Priority Peoria. Priority Peoria to me is what it means when all of us work in our respective spaces, rather it be local government, state government, rather it be community advocacy, violence prevention, um, business opportunities, business empowerment. All of these spaces, in my estimation, are public safety. Public safety is not just the issue of the police. It is not just a law enforcement initiative. It is something that the entire community has to be committed to and have a strong sense of pride into making sure that we all have skin in this game. We are proud to stand here today to talk about some of the unprecedented and historic amounts of resources that are being invested into the city of Peoria. We know all too well that there is a clear mandate to make strategic investments in the area of law enforcement. And when I say the area of law enforcement and public safety, that doesn't just mean the police. It includes the police, but that also means further investment in our school systems, further investment in after-school programming, further investment in the advocacy organizations that do the work of keeping kids safe, keeping families whole in this community. And we've had the ability, by working collaboratively, to do that this year. Quickly, we will talk very briefly about some of the wins that we've been able to actualize for the city of Peoria, and we'll talk about the investments, and then you'll hear from a lot of folks in this community who've been working together in a collaborative fashion to make Peorians safer. House Bill 1103 is the Expressway Camera and Ring Doorbell Modernization Act. What this policy measure will do is this policy measure will give people the opportunity to be able to uh, use their ring doorbell as we have seen on any number of timelines on social media. We have seen folks that have caught crimes happening in their, in their neighborhoods and they have actually uploaded that information to either their neighborhood, their neighbor app, or even on social media. What we're looking to do is we want to provide people a little bit of initiative to be able to then share that information with law enforcement to be able to better, to use modernized tools to better solve crime. We've put together a pilot to, of $1 million that would be invested so that individuals 
who want to come forward and provide that information to law enforcement would be able to get a small piece of that pie back. Uh, we've also expanded the Expressway Camera Act. About four years ago, there was an act that put uh, cameras along the interstates in Cook County. Cook County was the only city in the state that had that. This past year, uh, working together with communities and law enforcement, we were able to expand that. Peoria is going to be included um, in that expansion. That's something that uh, Chief Echeverria reached out early on to myself and to Senator Kaler to express uh, a very specific interest and wanting to get that done. We were able to achieve that for Peoria. We actually have a first responder and shift care worker concept that frankly was brought forth by the Fraternal Order of Police. As you know, there are a lot of officers are not just officers. They're parents, they're mothers, they're fathers, they have children. And it can be very difficult when you are in law enforcement or if you are a shift worker to be able to work those hours of third shift when you cannot find quality childcare. Again, that was an issue that was brought forth by the Fraternal Order of Police. So we have expanded that, not just to officers, but to all shift workers. So we're talking about your nurses, your CNAs, individuals working in uh, dispatch. We're talking about folks that stock, the, stock our grocery stores that we go to. All have opportunity to be able to have quality childcare. The recruitment and retention matters specific to law enforcement. Uh, our law enforcement really rolled their sleeves up this past spring from Chief Echeverria, also um, Sheriff Brian Asbell brought forth solid quality proposals that have now become, that are now on the path to becoming the law of the land here in the state of Illinois. I think we should be proud that in this city we had people who we frankly sometimes don't even understand the value of the people who we walk around and who we call our folks each and every day. But I can tell you there is not a group of leaders who brought more to the table than the leaders from right here in Peoria that were able to get passed successfully this past spring. Um, <clears throat> again, this, this poli these policy measures were worked on in a very collaborative fashion and last but certainly not least, specific to legislative policies, House Bill 4673, which was a policy that was the brainchild of Chief Echeverria, which is the Co-Responder Victims, uh, Victims Witness Act that will, number one, provide for uh, social workers as well as behavioral health professionals to be able to operate with our law enforcement, um, being with them on call so that when they are responding uh, to community, we actually will have uh, behavioral health professionals that are able to de-escalate situations in a manner that we hope would provide a much better outcome. What it would also do is it would provide for greater feedback on the backside of those circumstances where we know that simply because someone uh, had an, an engagement or an interaction with law enforcement, we know that oftentimes those issues go far beyond that, that moment's instance and we know that we have a need to, greater provi to provide greater support for the individuals of our community and the social worker aspect of having social workers embedded in the Peoria Police Department, frankly, is a model for 21st century policing. Not only is this going to be here in the city of Peoria, it was a Peoria-led concept, 
but this is also going to be in the cities of Waukegan, East St. Louis, and Springfield. And again, I cannot reiterate how important it is that this concept was born right here in the city of Peoria that is now going to be expanded um, potentially throughout the state of Illinois. We, clearly, it's something that we should be proud of. Another component to that policy, as we know, there are far too many people who have experienced um, the devastation of gun violence in our community. And we often hear the stories of, well, we need people, if they know something, we need them to say something. We want them to be able to come forward. They need to feel protected. They need to be put in an environment where if they did, if they were to come forward, they would not fear for their lives or potentially for the lives of their children. And because we have not had a system and a process and policy that frankly allowed for that, we knew that it was more than time that we put our money where our mouth is. And so when we are telling people or making the suggestion that people come forward with information specifically to the issues of homicide, we as a policy prescription should be able to support those policies, should be able to support that individual or that family in being able to do what we all say that people should do, which is if they know something, say something. Back to paper ballots in Peoria County. WMBD's Will Stevenson got a first-hand look on Friday with Peoria County Election Commission leader Elizabeth Gannon. We had had the uh, old system in place for 16 years, so it was at its end of life. Um, we, we were at a point where the, the vendor was no longer supporting the product, and we were having a, a hard time finding replacement parts as well. So uh, because of that, we did uh, go out for a bid, and we now have new voting equipment. Uh, it is a paper-based system, so it, it will be a very different experience for the voter, uh, but I think that it will be, it will be very well received and and people will like what they're what we've got for them give me an idea of when you knew that it was time to get new equipment what specifically were you looking for what kind of qualities or or that sort of thing that you were you were looking for in our new system yeah uh, we wanted something that uh, would was a paper-based system, and that's only because there is no system on the market right now that meets federal requirements. So we knew that a paper-based system was the direction that we needed to go. We also wanted uh, every ballot, no matter you voted vote by mail, you voted early, or you vote in your polling place. We wanted all of those ballots to look the same. So you couldn't tell the difference between how somebody was casting their vote. That was important to us. And we also wanted a uh, the disability unit. So we have one disability unit that has to be in every polling place. We wanted that to be really user-friendly for the voter. Would you have chosen something touch screen if that was if that ended up being the best choice talk about paper versus not paper i guess i think the the trend now we are we are going to a paper based system uh, and so i think that we would have we would have chose to go that way as well that's what the public is is has the most confidence in knowing that you have that paper backup that you can go to in the event of an issue is reassuring for for the voting public even with all the, I guess, all the problems we hear, you know, every year of voters, you know, not either either overfilling of an oval or something or not not completely filling it in or, or, or things like that, that you're still comfortable with 
paper being the best choice? I am sure. Even if you're if you're voting early or you're voting in your polling place on election day, the scanner that you insert the ballot into will notify you if you have overvoted. It will notify you if you have not shaded the box in enough and it cannot pick that vote up. So it will let you know. It will let you know that you you've, may have made a mistake or you might want to reevaluate your ballot and see if that's really how you want to cast your vote. I should probably go back and ask too then. Uh, it is as simple as filling in an oval with the, this paper system? It is. It won't be an oval though. It'll be a rectangle, but big difference there. But yes, you will need to fill in the rectangle completely. And uh, that's that's the whole process. I spent all these years learning how to fill in circles, and now I have to fill in a square? No. I know. I know. It'll be a challenge. Um, what, uh, what led you, I guess, then to the final choice? Talk to me about this system versus maybe others you, you, you looked at. The reason why we chose this system comes down to that um, having every ballot appear the same, no matter how you are voting, um, that, that was the deciding factor for us. So it's pretty much as easy as we think it is for anyone to do this and if they if someone does undervote or overvote or doesn't fill in an oval does, do they get the chance to correct that how does that part work sure so if you overvote the scanner will notify you that you have made too many choices on whatever race that was and it gives you the option would you like to be issued a new ballot or would you like to cast it as is so the, you, if you did want a new ballot, you would go back to the election judge station and they would be able to reissue you a new ballot. Have you run into that problem before where some a voter says, oh, I messed up, can I get a new ballot or, or did I do this right or that sort of thing? Well, we've never had paper in the polling place before. This is our, our old system was all electronic. So this will this will be a big change uh, for our election judges. But uh, we'll be able to manage manage our paper based system fairly certainly fairly well, I think. And in terms of uh, counting the votes at the end of the night, is that going to be just as easy as it was with a digital system, perhaps. I, I came from another community where they you filled in ovals and then the machine took the paper ballot and then it always amazed me how quickly that was that was able to be determined at the end of the night. Yes, yeah, so that, that the, the tabulation process is very similar. So the, the votes are stored on the scanner and then those scanners are brought back for tabulation on election night. So that's just, that we will still have the speed at which we are um, able to get election results out to you on election night. Um, but again, we have the paper backup if that's something that we ever need to go and, and look at again. Uh, we're here on a day where you're showing off as the election commission all the, the new equipment. You were telling me before we went on that we kind of, at least the way I'm looking at it is there are two sides here, kind of the early voting and what it'll look like on election day itself. Talk about the, the difference between the two here. Sure. So for it's it's just a different way of printing your ballot on demand. So when you walk into the polling place, there will not be pre-printed stacks of ballots. The, the election judge will check you in and then print the ballot that is specific for you. And then you'll be handed that ballot. So the process is the same for early voting and election day. It's just the equipment that we will use to do it. So the voter won't necessarily notice a difference. Similar, but slightly different. Exactly. <laughs> um, in terms of security, 
obviously that's been a big issue, especially since the state system was kind of hacked into a few years back. Uh, um, obviously, that's got to be an important component of all of this for you guys. Of course, that was a very important component of the decision uh, making, choosing this vendor. Uh, I think it's important for everyone to know that the voting equipment is never attached to the internet. Uh, it not during the building of the ballot, the voting process, or the tabulation. It never touches the internet. Eve, I've lived in cities where they count the votes and then post the results online. That's not something that can be compromised in any way. Or, or, or how do you do it on election night? Sure, that's exactly what happens is we will go and tabulate the votes and then it's it's a PDF report mm -hmm. that we would post to our website. So that is just a report. If somebody was to take that off our website and manipulate it, it's not the official results. We have that in our office. What sorts of other things, uh, if anything, is different about uh, about this year for the Election Commission? Obviously, with redistricting, some of that's changed, but uh, is anything else uh I guess, new and exciting for the Election Commission this year? Yes, actually there is. Uh, this is the first time that Illinois is offering permanent vote by mail. So if you like voting by mail, you can sign up to automatically receive a vote by mail ballot for every election. So we would not need to send you that application to vote first. We would just automatically send you the ballot. Is that a good idea or a bad idea, do you think? I think it's a great idea. You know, we have very different, we have per, we have vote by mail, we have early voting, and we have election day voting. Maybe not everyone has the confidence in voting, but some, in voting by mail, but some people do. And now it is an option for them and they can take advantage of that. I think that probably leads me to my next question then. What would you say to someone who might still have concerns about voting one way or another given uh, some of the how shall I say politely, controversies in addition to security that have been widely talked about the last number of election cycles? Sure. I have two things that I'd like to say about that is that every ballot is specifically attached to a voter. Okay. So it's not like we just mail ballots out to people. They have to ask for that ballot. We know what day it was mailed out. We track it. There are barcodes attached to everything. So we know when your ballot goes out. We know when it goes in. Vote by mail ballots are verified by signature comparison, just like we would do for early voting and election day. And my second thing I would say is if you are concerned about any aspect of the voting process, I would encourage you to sign up and work as an election judge. By doing that, you can be a part of the process and you can see how everything works in the polling place. And that might help boost your confidence in the system. That does it for this edition of Week in Review. Join us this time next week on this Midwest 360 station for another recap of some of the biggest issues and events in central Illinois. I'm Cooper Banks. WMBD News.